Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, China has blasted the United States for interfering in its internal affairs with the National Defense Authorization Act. China's Xiaomi has unveiled its first electric vehicle with the ambition to become a top automaker. And we bring you the final episode of our year-end review series to take a look at the incredible progress in artificial intelligence over the past year. China has accused the U.S. of interfering in China's internal affairs. Earlier this month, the U.S. passed the National Defense Authorization Act for the fiscal year 2024. China says the bill contains content that causes serious damage to peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Spokesperson Chen Binghua of the State Council's Taiwan Affairs Office is urging the U.S. to stop sending arms to the Taiwan region. Some people in the United States say they hope for peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits, but in fact, they are accelerating the arming of Taiwan, supporting the so-called Taiwan Independent Separatist Forces, inciting cross-strait confrontation, and adding fuel to the fire. We urge the United States to earnestly abide by its political commitments to China on the Taiwan question, embody non-support for so-called Taiwan independence in concrete actions, refrain from implementing the negative provisions related to Taiwan in the defense policy bill, immediately stop arming Taiwan and stop destroying Taiwan, harming Taiwan, and stop intervening in Taiwan elections. China's Ministry of National Defense has also expressed firm opposition to the act, stating that it unjustifiably plays up the so-called China military threat and seriously undermines China's sovereignty, security, and developmental interests. For more, we are now joined on the line by Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Liu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Kuangyu. So uh, the defense bill contains several provisions related to Taiwan. How do you look at these provisions, and what do you think could be the key objectives or underlying intentions behind them? Uh, the new version of the U.S. NDA continues to strong pro-Taiwan trend in recent years, and to meet the needs of the U.S.-Taiwan joint operations. It includes includes a large number of institutional uh, deepening of joint training of the Taiwan military, uh, strengthening joint interoperability and the intelligence sharing, and strengthening military cybersecurity cooperation between Taiwan and the U.S. In terms of uh, military significance, this bill increases Taiwan's self-defense capabilities uh, much more than before. In addition to talking about uh, asymmetric defense strategies, more emphasis has been put on military management, uh, joint combat imagery, and accelerating of arms sales to Taiwan. Uh, we can see that after the formation of the Indo-Pacific Alliance, the U.S. has been strengthening Taiwan's military defense capabilities. The most important thing is to strengthen the data link system in this, uh, in this act combined with the Indo-Pacific military link of the U.S. Uh, latest in, uh, we can see also see uh, in the latest arms, to, arms sales to Taiwan, which is uh, something like a link 16 level system. Uh, which we can see that U.S. military is, attach, is attaching more importance to the integration of intelligence, of data, of command systems with the Taiwan military, including the sharing of combat images, the unification of the chain command, etc. And its purpose is to turn the Taiwan army into a part of U.S. military uh, control system, and that is the U.S. is preparing for a joint, uh, a joint operation with, U, with the Taiwan army in the maybe near future. Well, the Chinese spokesperson says the U.S. actions do not match its words when it comes to Taiwan-related issues. How do you look at this, and, and what do you think is behind such kind of inconsistency? Yes, there is uh, inconsistency. In fact, the political and strategical credibility of the U.S. is relatively poor, and its specific policies are always changing according to situations and interests. Uh, including uh, against its allies and partners, not mentioning China, which is regarded as its uh, rivalry. Uh, this uh, this is also why we see Taiwan is just a pawn or even a, maybe abandoned by the U.S. Now, there are many factors behind this. One is the suppression of China's 
strategic interest in the, in the U.S. and the so-called anti-China political climate in, U, in the U.S., which determines that the U.S. government is not always be able to maintain a rational and cooperative posture uh, with China and will uh, always um, backtrack. And the second is that U.S. government deliberately raised the asking price to maintain a more uh, maybe flexible and proactive posture in the game between China and the U.S. Uh, we can see the U.S. Secretary of Defense Austin made it clear that after two, after two heads of state uh, in uh, the, the meeting in San Francisco that they say that he said the remarks at the summit would not affect the U.S. military deployment in Taiwan, which is a deliberate policy split. And the third is driven by uh, interest. We can see the recent bills, recent acts, and arms sales, for example, uh, they emphasize on military cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan. But behind this, the U.S. and the Western military industrial complex, such as, uh, for example, BAE, uh, have recently vigorously uh, promoted information and intelligence warfare, and the demand for battlefield cooperation has thus increased, which are also the driving force of the U.S. to promote, like we said, data links and military trainings around the world and with Taiwan. So what impact do you think this, this bill will have on peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait? Well, this bill is a step, uh, big uh, step, great further to uh, in the process of arming Taiwan, uh, much increasing the risk of proxy war on one hand, and increasing Taiwan's impulse to provoke uh, against the Chinese mainland. On the other hand, in terms of uh, maybe political significance, uh, it does further deepen the degree of cooperation between Taiwan and U.S. The entire military blueprint is to integrate Taiwan, like like I said into the military combat alliance of U.S. military in the Indo-Pacific region, which can be said uh, to be a state of a paramilitary alliance. Against this spectrum of deepening strategic competition between the U.S. and China, the Taiwan-related related provisions in this uh, NDAA will only be one of U.S. strategic measures and provisions uh, in military assistance to Taiwan. It's just the beginning, all of which are a a manifestation of the U.S. determination to, de- to deepen its relationship with Taiwan and to firmly push forward uh, a strategic competition with China. So we see the biggest risk here in the future that the U.S. policy towards Taiwan with this undergo may be a fundamental shift, especially when there is an election ahead, uh, completely n- negating the previous consensus and tacit understanding, which may become an important inflection point in the relationship between the two countries, uh, strategic competition and shed light in the Taiwan Strait. Okay. And notably, the bill requires assessment of what it calls Chinese coercion against Pacific Island nations that has diplomatic relations with Taiwan, aiming to let them change their diplomatic stance. I mean, does that sound hypocritical because the U.S. also adheres to this one-China policy and has diplomatic relations with China? So wouldn't that put the U.S. in a similar position? And, and what's the difference between a coercion and legitimate diplomatic efforts? Well, in my, in my opinion, that, that is not just a conspiracy, a conspiracy theory. It's just it's more, uh, more like a deliberate uh, stigmatizing excuse, which means that the, that the Americans themselves would not believe the rhetoric uh, as well, but they will use this to muddy uh, the international public opinion and send some wrong signals to Taiwan and to uh, the Pacific Island countries. What it really means that the U.S. has begun to develop strategies to use its influence in the South Pacific region uh, using Taiwan's foreign relations or foreign factors as a bargaining chip to escalate new uh, geopolitical gain. To under, uh, the underlying reason is not because of Taiwan, actually, because, but because the United States fears that the China's peaceful and mutual beneficial cooperation with those islands uh, will threaten the U.S., maritime hegemony here. In fact, we can see that uh, it is the U.S. and some of its allies that have been long adopted a coercive and hegemonic policy towards uh, those island countries in this region, not only effectively controlling their defense and police and security, but also interfering in their foreign affairs and internal affairs at large extent. Uh, we all know that China has always pursued a foreign policy of independence, uh, equality, 
uh, respect and non-interference, and in each other's internal affairs. If so if there is one hegemonic power in the world that likes to threaten others, coerce others, it's obviously only the United States. Yeah, and and also uh, the U.S. official contends that the bill, quote-unquote, enhances U.S. military readiness in the face of increasing Chinese aggression. However, from China's perspective, it appears that um, the U.S. is taking increasingly provocative measures, particularly with its military presence in the region. So how would you interpret this apparent disconnect in perceptions? Well, in this disconnection, I see that America suffers from at least two mistakes. First of all, it uses its hegemonic interest to understand understand the Taiwan question, which, uh, while not fully respecting the Taiwan question, is the core uh, connotation of China's internal affairs. Uh, therefore, the U.S. does not fully respect China's core interests and political red lines on this issue, uh, thinking that it can win a so-called game against China or a game of chicken by uh, con- uh, by condensing and constantly raising provocation, provocations against China and its chips in this game. And second, the U.S. uses its own logic to understand China and pushes its hegemonic, overbearing, and extremely selfish practice onto other countries or even uh, uh, preempts them. Uh, th- that, is, uh, th- that has no legitimacy or rationality in this international community. Uh, so if the U.S. cannot break out its own narrow thinking, it will it will be difficult for it to understand other sides' position on these questions, and and then, and of course uh, that cannot seek uh, rational consensus. Mm-hmm. So what impact do you think the bill will have on bilateral relations, particularly on the ongoing efforts to re-engage in dialogue after the San Francisco meeting? Well, for China, this act this act has seriously challenged the bottom line of the U.S.-China relationship and further undermined the, the, the strategic mutual trust between the two countries. With most of current dialogues mechanics in the field, especially in the defense uh, between the two countries on hold, the likelihood of strategic miscalculation at the top level of the two countries, dangerous incidents between front-level naval and air forces, and even crashes between the two militaries are uh, increasing. We can see the U.S. backtracking on the Taiwan-related questions has seriously damaged the foundation of mutual trust between China and U.S. and then, uh, dealt a substantial blow to the uh, bilateral relations and disrupt the process of easing and cooperation between the two countries. We see that the military dialogue between the two countries, which has just resumed, now only said, uh, looks uh, said to be overshadowed by the pro- proactive actions of the U.S., and um, that is a pity. Yes. Um, so what measures do you think should be taken to prevent possible miscalculation or conflicts from occurring in the region? Yes, first we must look within. We, uh, it's necessary, necessary to strengthen control over the biggest uncertainties in the Taiwan Strait in this region, namely the, the secessionist or the separatist uh, and the conf- and confrontational policies of the DPP authorities and and the attitude of, indi- uh, of Taiwan independence of Lai Qingde, who is the current leader of this DPP party and is also the, a contender in his so-called general election campaign. And the Taiwan independence separatist activities or secessionist activities uh, uh, and their ventures on this island have led to a lack of uh, political mutual trust between the two sides across the strait and the interruption of the communication channels as well, which is the direct re- reason for the current difficulties in managing rigs between the two sides. Only by forcefully uh, suppressing the, the agitation of Taiwan independence, uh, Taiwan independence and returning to the common uh, political foundation uh, can, we, uh, uh, can we find rational and peaceful exchanges between the two sides uh, mm-hmm. be possible. Okay. Secondly, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So thank you, Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Science. Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi has unveiled its long-awaited electric vehicle. The sedan named at SU7 will leverage its shared operating system with the company's popular smartphones. It's unclear at this point how much this model will cost. For more, my colleague Ding Heng spoke with Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business at
Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. So why do you think Xiaomi decided to make inroads into the EV industry? Any particular a、uh, competitive advantage that we can possibly expect regarding this Xiaomi model? Well, first of all, it is really a rising uh, industry uh, where uh, China uh, has uh, highly been encouraging the investment in this area. And as a matter of fact, over the last almost ten years, China has.、Uh, Staged on the first place in the international、uh, market in terms of the e vehicles, and together、uh, with、uh, many other type of uh, 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 vehicles,、uh, people would estimate that by year 2030, the share of、uh, e vehicles among the auto industry shall reach、uh, nearly 30 percent from now less than five percent. So they do see. The opportunity for further growth. Secondly,、uh, Xiaomi uh, has been known for success in the mobile、uh, device industries, and、uh, they are also、uh, very apt in doing the、uh, internet connectivity.、Uh, so、uh, I think now they can really exercise their expertise in management、uh, in the、uh, electronic industry. Into the auto industry and also with、uh, more of the、uh, artificial intelligence、uh, that can be inputted over there. But having said that, they already got their fingers burnt、uh, in a particular e-vehicle、uh, market called Wima. I think now they will be able to learn the lesson by、uh, more of a cautious、uh, approach in the promotion for this particular industry because, after all. Uh, it is not their particular expertise.、Mm. So apart from Xiaomi, we also saw、uh, Huawei, for example, launch a new EV model called、uh, Luxeed S7、uh, in November 2023. In the case of Huawei, its EV model was jointly developed with traditional automaker Xiaomi. So I guess it is becoming a trendy thing that smartphone businesses are 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 beginning to develop EVs or smart cars. So, by the way, what do you make of Xiaomi's ambition to become a major automaker in in some fifteen to twenty years from now? I mean, if Xiaomi is really serious about this particular goal, what kind of um efforts do you think will be required? Well. The threshold to enter this、uh, industry is、uh, rather low, and also the、uh, government policy is、uh, very supportive. So therefore, it becomes so much attractive. But on the other hand, this industry does require a large investment for skill operation. If you know those companies who are only selling less than a thousand、uh, cars per year, definitely they will be kicked out of the market. So given The rising competition. The who will be able to win out? Those who first have the abundant supply and continuous supply of、uh, capital, in which Xiaomi is very good at. And uh, uh, secondly, the、uh, technology upgrading. Because right now, on the conceptual level, almost all car industries、uh, can really install the、uh, renewable batteries into it. And、uh, set a sort of uh, uh, mapping devices, but uh, uh, the key is really in the technology upgrading. So I think Xiaomi, Huawei are very agile in uh, either uh, indeed is inventing some of the new technologies for further competition, or they have the leverage、uh, into other technological resources. Uh, so they can really boost their、uh, competitive advantage. And third, it is really the marketing promotion because uh, uh, right now we have uh, uh, more than fifty、uh, mm. uh, type of e-vehicle makers, and now the、uh, the fierce price war or technology war. But more importantly, it is the war of marketing and how they can really provide the right service to the. Uh, and consumers, how they can really set up the、uh, sales network、uh, on a more low cost but a widespread basis. So these are really the、uh, competitive landscape at the moment. 
Uh, I think now uh, they can be more confident in doing that. But for other companies, you know, real estate companies or, you know, the garment companies who swamp into this market, they will uh, definitely be less advantageous competing with these giants, with uh, the series technology, with the continuous flow of capital, and mm. also with their marketing skills. Mm. I guess when you said there are more than 50 EV makers, I guess you are uh, you were referring to the number here in China alone. So I guess um, in a bigger picture sense, uh, like you suggested, uh, the Xiaomi car's debut is coming at a time when the Chinese auto market overall, including the EV market, is uh, is beginning to wrestle to wrestle with a capacity glut. So do you think these um, smartphone maker developed EVs, let's put it this way, will further contribute to this um, uh, market saturation? Uh, definitely. Uh, right now, in spite of the roaring, uh, the landscape for artificial intelligence, big data, etc., uh, they do need to be translated into the real economy. Car making is uh, a, a large part. They consume large amount of capital in which they are good at. And not right now, uh, uh, with more of the uh, capital accumulation, and many other companies do not really have the uh, right type of business opportunities to exercise their uh, skill advantage. So Xiaomi and uh, uh, Huawei are also uh, doing it, but uh, for some other companies who do not really have the technical expertise, uh, they uh, will be falling behind. But for Xiaomi, they have the advantage in uh, in the uh, marketing skills, in their organiz organizational efficiency. But uh, uh, again, they do not have the existing technology. They do not have the uh, history of doing the auto industry, which is uh, quite different. Mm. to the smartphone market. So, uh, therefore, I think now it's up to them as how they can really uh, leverage uh, with the uh, either talent pool and also innovation labs and then, uh, you know, to have better communication with the regulators and also with the, uh, the stock exchange, uh, the commissions, so that uh, they will be permitted with more of their the uh, capitalization process, mm -hmm. and uh, they will be able to streamline more with the uh, in, uh, well with the entire ecosystem, uh, you know, together with suppliers, with sourcing of auto parts, and also spread on global market base. Mm. So over the long term, I guess um, a, a broader question on our mind is what kind of EV makers will become the ultimate market winners in China or elsewhere? Um, Professor, you talk about, say, uh, technological expertise. You talk about uh, capitals, money, cash. Uh, do you think these are the only two uh, determining factors for this, um, for this question? Well, for any large industry... Uh, uh, which is still uh, at the stage of uh, uh, sun rising. There are uh, companies who are there to pave the road, and there are companies who roll down the road. So uh, it is really highly pre uh, predatory at the moment for the uh, e-vehicle market. And uh, uh, I think now the winners will be one. Uh, they have the uh, enough capital to burn. Second whether they are able to capture the cutting-edge technology and stay always on the frontier market. And third is that uh, whether they are able to weave an entire network of uh, uh, ecosystem uh, from su uh, supply uh, of the raw materials to the uh, car parts and uh, to the whole assembly process and then to the entire marketing efforts uh, with uh, all the network that's in place. And then, uh, you know, they also need to uh, work more with the regulators because new technology needs a certain threshold, and uh, they are also under uh, heavy watch, uh, both for the capital operation and also for the uh, application of new technologies, and particularly now uh, a very realistic issue that is that uh, for e-vehicles, you know, the, uh, whether the government at the local level 
are able to be supportive in setting up more of the charging posts. You're listening to World Today. I'm Jiaying. This is the final episode of our year-end review series, where we reflect on the defining moments that have shaped the world in 2023. It has been a year of incredible progress in artificial intelligence. Generative AI captured the world's attention with OpenAI's ChatGPT going viral. Other big companies are racing for dominance with releases including Google's Gemini, Meta's Llama, and Elon Musk's Grok. It's also been a year that governments began taking AI risks seriously, with the European Union's AI Act, the White House's executive order on AI, and China's Global AI Governance Initiative. And in a historical move, countries gathered at the first AI summit in the UK, agreeing to manage the AI risk together. How will artificial intelligence reshape our industries and daily lives, and how can we ensure that its development benefits us all while mitigating potential dangers? To answer these questions and more, we are joined by Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, and Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Shi Law Firm. Um, so, Annie, to start with you, how pivotal was this year, 2023, for artificial intelligence, particularly in light of the breakthroughs in generative AI, with notable instances like OpenAI's ChatGPT going viral? Well, thanks for having me on, Jiaoying. I think that、uh, this was actually a very, very important year for artificial intelligence, and probably、uh, this may sound a little bit surprising to hear. But more important than many people actually are giving it credit for. And why do I say this? So Karl Marx wrote that men make their own history, but not of their own free will. They do not make it under conditions of their choosing, but under conditions inherited from the past. And what this means is that artificial intelligence is not only improving、uh, the economy, making our lives easier, etc. But it actually、uh, is poised to change in very profound ways economic, society, and politics, just as the age of enlightenment、uh, and the scientific revolution、uh, led to the industrial revolution and very, very profound changes. So I think、uh, 2023 is a very important year, not only、uh, for the new products that are launched, but I think we'll look back and see that、uh, just as we move from the age of faith. To the age of reason or the Enlightenment, we're actually entering a new age that many are calling the age of AI. Okay, so、uh, Dr. Lehman, do you think、uh, AI, particularly generative AI, has already reshaped our industries in many ways, as as businesses and consumers have largely adopted these models in the past year? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with、uh, with Andy Mock for sure, and and I do think it's it's changed, and we're not, you know, Pandora can't get back in the box.、Um, I think that, you know, it's hard to believe, but it was November of 2022, so it's really only been、um, a little bit over a year that during this 2023 where ChatGPT got momentum, and then if you take a look at what was what came out at the same time was a, a program by Meta called Galactica. And、um, that was out for a total of three days before it was pulled. So I mean, there were no guardrails at all on that. And I think ChatGPT is, you know, which was founded by OpenAI and which you know Elon Musk was a part of initially. So that garnered all its everyone's imagination, and that things went viral、uh, as far as what AI is all about. And so so people, you know, who don't really understand it, are now at least discussing it. Um, certainly, like you said, Jayan, with regards to、um, AI being a part of our lives, an integral part of our lives, with regards to payment,、um, and we, which we may or may not even recognize, with regards to health management, with regards to deep learning, which is you know generative, which is taking a whole bunch of data and then、um, trying to you know make it do something that resembles thinking. Some people have talked about it as kind of auto-complete on steroids. That there isn't enough, there isn't enough thinking going on. I mean, you know, the so-called thinking. Obviously, the the computer there hasn't. We haven't reached singularity, which is where there's going to be that、um, 
um, you know, that moment where it's going to be able to do reasoning on its own. And I think the founder, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, or at least one of the founders of AI uh, from the University of Toronto, a British Canadian, he was saying that uh, he thought it might be 25 to 30 years off, but it's it's, it's actually like five years from singularity. But no, I, I think it's yeah, it's profoundly changed our lives and it will continue to do so in a in a more rapid pace, whether we like it or not. Okay, so Annie, what specific sectors do you think will undergo the most significant transformation uh, with the development of AI? Well, that's a tough question to answer, Jiaoying. Um, and I know that we are paying a lot of attention to generative AI, these uh, chatbots like um, uh, ChatGPT. But I think we also have to recognize that uh, this has been a long time coming. And there are other types of AI that are just as powerful. It wasn't that long ago when computers could not recognize images that it was considered a remarkable achievement that uh, computers, software algorithms could identify cats from photos. And it's very easy to forget that, that uh, this is also an important part of artificial intelligence, as is these predictive algorithms that we use when we use uh, websites like uh, Amazon, like uh, TikTok, etc. So all of these taken together, I would say that uh, I would consider AI as something like a, ge a general purpose technology, meaning that it affects every industry, like electricity, like steam power. And in this way, it's a little bit different than when we think about, say, mobile phones that created entirely new industries and entirely new ecosystems. Um, that AI, at least so far, seems to be more of a horizontal type technology that is affecting everything from retail to uh, healthcare, uh, healthcare R&D, uh, to even defense. Uh, anything we can think of, I think, has already been impacted uh, by AI, and this is only the beginning. Okay, uh, so uh, Dr. Lehman, uh, as we know, AI now has the ability to generate art, music and literature. So some would argue that it could revolutionize creative industries, while others worry that it might stifle human creativity. So how do you foresee the role of AI in the future of creative arts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a very interesting ride, no doubt about it. And I, I mean, I think we've seen this time and time again with the um, over the course of human history. Certainly with every invention, there are detractors and there are people who says, who will say that you know it should when the Gutenberg, you know Bible was was uh, was one thing, or when when the um, the printing press was invented, so people took a took an approach that that, that was going to harm things as well, and um, and then there was the um, unintended circumstance or uh, unintended consequences that came from each of these things, and that's what we're getting to here with art. For example, I mean, Jalian, just to reiterate what you were saying is in the Grammys, uh, which is an American Music Award, they're they're trying to prohibit or they're prohibiting uh, the use of AI music to be uh, part of the submissions for what's considered uh, for a Grammy Award. And so the question is, does this become art and is this going to revolutionize it? There's no doubt about it. Um, and the question is, you know, <laughs> what is art? I mean, that's that's a question that, mm -hmm. that one could ponder on for quite a long time. But certainly with deep fakes, with um, with taking artists uh, and their voices, artists that are alive, artists that are dead, um, that where there are reproductions of their voices, um, you know, this can this can obviously make big changes in the music industry, can make big changes in uh, certainly with regards to art and, and uh, all, all sorts of things. So um, I think it has a potential to revolutionize creative industries by providing new tools and avenues for artists, there's no doubt. And AI-generated art can inspire traditional artists and lead to innovative collaborations. This is on the good side. I mean, AI becomes a creative partner offering a fresh perspective and novel approaches for artistic expression. That's the positive side. The, the sort of negative side is is what we had discussed earlier. But I think there's a need for a nuanced approach, which is a little bit like Andy Mock was talking about. While AI can enhance creativity, it should not replace human creativity. And I, I don't think it will. I think it's always gonna be part of the process. And the future lies in collaboration where artists and AI can work together symbolically or symbiotically and push these boundaries 
for what's possible for creative arts. That's that's the way forward. Okay, so Annie, apart from the challenges that AI might pose to our different industries, with、uh, what specific risks do you think we should pay attention to, and and what ethical principles do you think should guide the development and use of AI? Well, let me answer this question、uh, by going back to the previous question you asked Ed, and I think he made some great points.、Um, is that I see it a little bit differently. In that today, of course, I think AI is a tool in creative endeavors,、uh, just like turntables were a tool that allowed hip hop、uh, to emerge as, as a separate art form.、Uh, digital sampling advanced hip hop, so、uh, it's certainly already a tool. But I think what it's doing、uh, is moving up the value chain, as it were, in that working as a Partner, I think, as Ed touched on, with humans to co-create. So this is very different than、uh, being a tool. This is actually being a part of the creative process. So many people use、uh, AI applications to brainstorm, to say, "Give me some ideas,、uh, maybe make up some melodies,、um, give me a script." So this is、uh, something that is very new.、Uh, but I think what we can see on the horizon. And this is where I, I differ、uh, a little bit with Ed, is that I don't think it'll be too long before we see AI independently creating even more impactful forms of art, other forms of creative expression, whether those are works of fiction that we read, songs we listen to,、uh, films that we watch, and this is going to be profoundly disruptive. Because we think of what makes us human, besides our ability to reason, is our ability to engage in these creative endeavors. So I think that this is going to be、uh, a huge, huge challenge. And I think this is one of the risks, Jiaoying,、uh, that we can think of. There are, of course, many, many other risks.、Uh, some go as far, of course, to say that、uh, we have to be very careful because AI、uh, could result in the extinction of mankind. Uh, at, the, at the most extreme,、uh, it can create all sorts of disruptions, exact, exacerbate inequality,、uh, in general, make the world more dangerous in ways we can predict and in ways that perhaps we can't predict. So I think this is、uh, what makes this both a scary, but it's a very exciting time as well. Yes, yes, I, I I do agree. I mean, AI currently is a tool for humans, but if we become overdependent on it, we may become as slaves, right? So,、um, Edward,、uh, let's talk about the regulation on AI. I mean, striking a balance between fostering innovation and implementing regulation is is challenging. So, how do you think policymakers and 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 industry leaders can find a middle ground that encourages AI advancement while safeguarding against potential risks? Yeah, I mean, collaboration is the key to striking that balance. I mean, in some in some way, shape, or form. I mean, policymakers, industry leaders,、um, and the tech community should work together to try to create regulations that foster innovation without compromising safety and ethical considerations. This is a big, tall order because you've got these policymakers, industry leaders that don't necessarily understand it. And even if we take a look at ChatGPT again. You have the CEO, which was mysteriously、uh, displaced and then re- and then brought back again. So it's hard to say what's going on behind the scenes with it. But that that's what we're looking towards, at least with with regards to putting on guardrails, engaging in ongoing dialogue and adapting regulations as technology evolves is crucial. But the issue is who's infallible because they're final、uh, or who's final because they're infallible. You know what what is what who is the Backstop. Which law to apply? Like you talked about earlier, I mean, the UK has had a meeting. China's got its regulations. The United States got has executive orders in place. But this is, you know, we're living in a global world, and there's folks that can get online and can you know, represent that they're in one country when they're really in another one. And so it's hard to say, you know, which,、uh, you know, which is going to be infallible because they're final, or who, who's going to be the, the backstop on the regulators. Eventually, it's going to be the industry. But when you look at the industry, I mean, I look at the United States, for example. I looked this up. There's some 14,700 AI startups in the United States alone. 
that, I mean, cover a wide range of businesses, but, you know, trying to, like I said, put that, uh, you know, genie back in the bottle or, you know, uh, close Pandora's box is going to be very difficult. So let's look at trying to regulate it. And the only way with, with regulation is flexibility and regulatory frameworks is crucial. So it has to be a bit like a mini skirt. It's got to cover all the basics there, but it's got to be, uh, you know, loose enough so that, you know, you've got to be able to to draw attention and, and make it a product that's worth worth working with. Um, they should allow for the adaptation of the fast paced nature of AI development while maintaining robust system for addressing emerging risks. Like I talked about earlier, Galactica, which was the, the uh, meta program, was yanked after three days. I mean, just simply three days it was down because it was actually providing, you know, pathways, you know, on, on things that just were not true. You could look up something like, you know, what's the safe way to eat glass or what's the what's the reason for doing it? And they, they would come up with it was it was written supposedly for scientists to write, um, you know, scientific papers. But they would give this this incorrect version of it and it became dangerous. So um, so one has to regularly assess and update uh, in order to keep pace with the dynamic nature of AI advancements. Law, unfortunately, is a little bit slower moving. And the other thing, I mean, we haven't touched on at all is is the idea of, of copyrights, what, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. But um, and and the other types of uh, intellectual property that that is a part and parcel of all of this, and then creating these derivative works, which are also protected by intellectual property. But it could be a great thing, and it will be a great thing, I think, if it's like like you were saying, you know, it's like uh, it, it's a great. Uh, um, you know, um, if you're a master, but um, but you don't want to be a slave to it. That's for sure. Okay. So, Andy, who, who do you think should play a leading role in in re regulating AI? Should it be the government or the industry, or perhaps there should be some um, international organizations? Well, I'd say, Jiaoyang, all of the above. But one of the big issues is from just a practical matter that given the uh, political world that we live in, uh, national governments uh, must play an important, if not a central role. And here I want to talk about something that I think is very, very important. And this is something that comes from the military uh, that's called the OODA loop, uh, which stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. <clears throat> and what we have to recognize is AI is so new that it is impossible to know what the right thing to do is at any time. So what's going to matter, and already does matter a lot, is the ability to react quickly, uh, to be agile, and respond to both opportunities and threats. And I think here we need to look at the different governments around the world, and I think the three that matter for AI uh, are China, uh, Europe, and the United States. And look at what does their OODA loop look like? How quickly, how accurately can they observe, orient themselves to the challenge or the opportunity, make a good decision, and act? And I think here it's very, very clear that the U.S., because of its political structure and its values, is not in a very good situation to do this um, because the ability of the federal government to align uh, state and municipal government uh, is really very uh, almost impossible to do. Uh, the ability to coordinate with industry, as we've seen, uh, is also very, very difficult. Uh, the EU does a better job, I think, in terms of the regulatory side. Uh, but China, I think, is the only major country that has a demonstrable record of success uh, in a fast, effective OODA loop when it comes to these kinds of very, very important issues. And so I think this is something to, to is worth pointing out. And when we think about uh, global standards, global norms, um, I think whether other countries like it or not, uh, China is going to have to play a very important role, not just because of its size, but of it, because of its ability to address these kinds of complex, uh, we could even call them civilizational issues.
Okay, so uh, Dr. Lehman, as Andy just now said, uh, there are these three key players in terms of AI regulation, uh, namely the EU, the United States, and and China. And it seems that there's a, this this global rivalry between these uh, key players in establishing regulatory frameworks. So, what consequences do you anticipate from this regulatory competition? You know, I. I have to agree with Andy Mock. I mean, well, there is definitely competition, no question about it. I think that you're talking apples and oranges uh, when you're talking about the, the governance of, and, and that was pointed out as well. But I, certainly the United States in the way that it's set up with case law, which is law, okay, so they decide a case and then, they, you know, for example, can same-sex couples get married? Everyone's confused whether the uh, Secretary of State can issue these certificates or not. The Supreme Court, I mean, eventually these cases uh, happen and it goes up to the Supreme Court, they make a decision so that the Secretary of State in in the state of Kentucky can issue, or the county there can issue a marriage license for same-sex marriages. Everyone knows it's going to happen and that that happens. But that takes a long time often and it's it's a bit of a patchwork. China, as has been pointed out, has, uh, you know, it's, it's a civil law based on the German Code of 1897 and it's got a code codified system. It is, you know, and I've been here through most of it. I mean, the at the dawning of the legal age or laws, policies and regulations that have been implemented, certainly with regards to intellectual property and certainly with regards to, you know, um, you know, civil procedure law, which is in, in the civil code, which has been adapted over the time that I've been here. But, um, you know, China does a good job about getting people to move lockstep because of the system here. And that can be a tremendous advantage for, um, you know, for being able to uh, regulate this. Um, the, what the United States has tried to do and to be similarly situated is through an executive order. So that means it doesn't go through Congress, doesn't go through the court system. It actually goes through the pen of Mr. Biden right now and makes a decision about how one should handle AI. With Mr. Biden's, you know, um, state of mind or whatever, I mean, with his approval ratings and everything else, a lot of that is 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 up for question for to a lot of folks as, as to whether that's the right way to go. So the, the third one is the European Union. European Union, um, again, has civil law uh, similar to China, but it is, um, you know, it, it is sort of a, a disassociated system sometimes with regards to regulation. And it's got a lot of regulation, but not a lot of teeth to be able to enforce that. So, I mean, I think everyone's, you know, all boats have to rise to a higher tide. I think that folks need to push forward. America does not have a good pathway for sure yet. Um, China's got, you know, a stellar ability to be, to adapt and to go forward, but it it also would receive a, a lot of criticism as well, because anyone who's the first one to try to do that is looking like they're trying to push the system around and, and, and manipulate the system. But someone's got to regulate this, that's for sure. And and so let's let's go forward with that. Okay. And, and Dr. Lehman, I think earlier you mentioned this intellectual property issue, and I know you are a legal expert on this. Uh, and as we know, in a recent development, the New York Times has become the first major U.S. media company to sue OpenAI and Microsoft over their AI chatbots, saying these tech companies have taken a free ride on millions of its articles to build their own technology. So how do you think this case might influence the legal landscape of AI technologies and their use of copyrighted content? Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinated, fascinating from a legal perspective, and it's it's become this artist Huxley's brave new world, so to speak. I mean, are we in the right place or the wrong place? But this New York Times case, it underscores the evolving legal challenges in AI. As AI systems become more and more sophisticated, I mean, issues of intellectual property and copyright infringement will become increasingly complex. And it's going to be something for the, again, the court system is going to adjudicate this which will then be appealed. And, but it prompts that the legal landscape to address the delicate balance between innovation and protecting intellectual property rights um, needs to be finely tuned. And this is where, I mean, human beings come into play with regards to judges, with regards to folks that are gonna be enforcing this. How does one interpret this? Um, and does it become, because these these works that can that the New York Times have created, it's inputting, and you can take a look at any sort of platform 
which is say WhatsApp, for example. I mean, when you're putting information in there, does one know whether that information is getting sold to big data to be able to uh, imitate generative learning? Uh, and, and certainly with regards to, I understand the copyright that's owned by uh, the New York Times with regards to their articles, they're complaining that that's going to be used and it highlights a need for clearer regulations on the use of copyrighted content in AI development. So one needs to strike a balance, which I hope the court's gonna do, between fostering innovation and protecting intellectual property, and there'll be a delicate yet crucial task for the legal landscape to address. So this is gonna be in case law. I think at the same time, the US Congress is gonna go ahead and be writing laws. And then we've got the intellectual property laws already in place, which copyright is generally life and being of the author plus um, plus 50 years. And, um, you know, there's been exceptions to that in, in the United States. So now we don't we have an in we have a situation where um, some of this copyrighted material is going to be, um, you know, mixed together with AI. And that's going to be problematic. So it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of that legal case is. In my mind, I think New York Times is probably going to have a have a very uphill battle. Um, it's an, it's the old system fighting against new innovation as to what's going to be happening, and um, and it will be very challenging. But I think it'll be part of many lawsuits that will be out there for sure. Um, and you know, we saw them before AI, and we'll see them during AI. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Andy, very briefly, your thought on this. Well, to add to what Ed said, I think that this is just greed, pure and simple. So the New York Times, uh, other media owners, of course, have been struggling with profitability. Now they see this enormous uh, potential gold mine uh, of artificial intelligence. And I think they just want their piece of it. And this is a legal issue, but I think it's perhaps just as much a political issue that will be fought over who gets. Uh, the spoils, uh, if there are spoils, and if they're as big as many people believe they will be, uh, we will be seeing many, many more of these types of issues uh, going forward. Okay, thank you, Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcasts by searching World Today. For further discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.